Our Lord, what Your Son teaches us here in this passage of Scripture is so cutting, so confrontive, so countercultural, so vital, so crucial to us, so personal. It would be revolutionary and transformative if we took it to heart, and He clearly means us to take it to heart. So it is our prayer in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit of God would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. How we begin a thing makes a tremendous amount of difference. Uh, In Pennsylvania in 2017, the utility company uh, installed something improperly, reportedly. They ignored 20 procedures, reportedly, and as a result, uh, a house blew up entirely, killed one worker, injured three others, and damaged four other houses because gas leaked out of it, because gas leaked through this improperly installed fixture, and because, again, reportedly, they did not act quickly enough in turning off the uh, electrical appliances and in contacting the fire department. So it was started improperly, and it was not seen to when that was discovered. Well, the same thing can happen in our walk with Christ. If we don't start properly, disaster is sure to follow. If we don't course correct, again, destruction and disaster are sure things. Understanding this helps us explain a lot. Understanding this helps us understand what our Christian life is and what our course must be. So in today's portion of Scripture, indeed, the Lord Jesus gets to the heart of this. He gets to the heart of how to start as a citizen of the kingdom of God and Uh, what greatness means to a citizen of the kingdom of God in God's eyes. So we begin together considering the disciples' question in verse 1. In that hour, Matthew writes, the disciples came up to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? Matthew wants us to know the time. Now remember in Matthew 18, we've got two sections of three parts each. Each has its own question from the disciples. This is the first section of the first part. And Matthew starts that section by making a very specific time notice. He says, at that, in that hour. Um, and he ends it precisely. If you look at 19.1, he says, now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words. So Matthew means us to see this is all said and taught on the same occasion. That really helps us in seeing how things hang together. Surprising to me how many commentators I've read who assure the reader that these are teachings of Jesus taken from various places and put together when Matthew is at such pains to tell us that, no, Jesus taught this all at the same time. I don't know any good reason to think other than what Matthew says, so we'll take it that way. And taking it that way helps us understand what the background was because it's obviously Matthew's intent by saying it that hour to make us think, well, what had just happened preceding that hour? So run your minds back over chapter 16 and 17. What happened in those chapters? In those chapters, that's where Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces him blessed for saying that. And he says that on the, the, the massive rock of what he just said, his deity, he would build his church. And he'd give Peter the keys to the kingdom of that church. And he would bind and loose with heaven's authority. And then he begins to teach them about his uh, coming 
crucifixion and resurrection, and this same Peter takes him aside and reproves him, rebukes him. Jesus calls him Satan and says to get back behind me and tells them again what it means to be a disciple and says that some of them there would not taste death before they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that's where chapter 17 starts. A few days later, he takes three of them this time, Peter, James, and John, to this mountain where they see him transformed and they see a peak of his divine glory. Then he comes down from that mountain and here's the nine and they have just failed to cast a demon out of a boy. Jesus casts them out and he rebukes them for their lack of faith. Then he has a conversation with Peter at the end of the chapter where people had asked, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And Peter said, yeah. Uh, And then Jesus takes him aside and says, well, Peter, now, who do the kings of this earth tax? Their sons or others? And Peter says, well, others. So Jesus says, well, then the sons of the king are free clearly saying that's what he is and that's what his disciples are, who he taught to pray our Father who art in heaven. So they shouldn't be taxed for the temple. But he says, so we don't cause them to stumble, go catch a fish and there will be a stater in its mouth and you can pay the tax for you and me. So Peter gets his own private lesson. Peter gets his own private miracle. In between those last two things, Jesus again said that he would die, but he said that he would be betrayed Although he doesn't say a whole lot more about how that would happen. So that's what we come to the start of chapter 18 with. He has mentioned, well, through the course of the chapter, he's, he's singled out Peter, but then he reproved Peter. He singled out Peter, James, and John, but then he talked about all of them as being sons of the kingdom. So, and he spoke of his death. So this leaves them apparently thinking, well, if he's going to die, then who's going to fill that vacuum who's going to lead when he dies this is the thing that they're thinking about maybe that question came up and Peter said well obviously me and they say you really think you Satan and uh, and then Peter maybe James and John say yeah we were taken up to the mountain right there with you we know in chapter 20 their mother's going to ask for them to sit at Jesus left and right hand so I mean maybe there was maybe quite a, a lively discussion there about who would lead and so they they Uh, are are forced to bring this to Jesus, this question to Jesus, who who is greatest in the kingdom of the heavens? So that brings us to Jesus' response in verses two through four, and it begins with an illustration in verse two, an illustration. No words, just an object lesson. And he called to himself a little child and stood him in their midst. Now picture this. This is quite shocking. They've asked him this question. They're waiting for his answer. They're waiting for a name. And what does Jesus do? He turns and he says, Bobby. You know, Bobby. Meher Shalah Hashbaz. You know, whatever the kid's name is. He turns and he calls this kid over. And a kid comes over. And without saying a word still, he stands this kid in front of them. And you've got to think that the disciples are watching this and they're thinking, what? <laughs> How is this? Is a kid going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We, we hardly even know that kid. Maybe they did, maybe they don't. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Jesus calls a kid over. Now, just stop and reflect on that. Jesus always has a kid near at hand if he needs a kid for an illustration. This isn't the only time that he does something like this. And the kid comes and obviously feels just fine about it. So this, this tells us something about Jesus. To see a man like him, important as he is, he's obviously 
got kids around him. They obviously feel comfortable with him. They obviously feel like he's interested in them. They can be safe with him. In fact, Mark tells us a really touching little note about this in Mark chapter 9. Uh, Mark tells us that Jesus takes the, takes the boy into his arms. He embraces him. He hugs him and uses him as this example. Uh, pretty shocking. This has got all eyes on him. What's he going to do now? What's the kid's name, by the way? Well, we don't really know. I made one up, but it doesn't tell us what his name is. What does the kid say? Well, nothing. We're not told that he said anything. We don't know. We aren't told. The only thing we know for sure is Jesus just calls him and called. He comes and stands where Jesus puts him with Jesus' arms around him. It may seem like a small thing, but I don't think it is, as I'll show you later. Note that now. We'll come back to it. So, here's this illustration, and that gives Jesus a chance to begin some re-education in verse 3. And he said, Amen, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as the little children, you absolutely will not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Now, you'll see little children again and again in my translation. That's because the word for child is, is the Greek diminutive form, meaning little child, <clears throat> pre-puberty, some, some younger child, somewhere between toddlerhood and just beyond that. So there's a little child. And he says, unless you are converted and become as the little children, you absolutely will not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. So let's start at the end of that with the danger that Jesus warn, warns about, and that danger is exclusion. Amen I, may, amen, I say to you, unless A and B happen, you absolutely will not enter the kingdom of the heavens. That's Jesus' warning, a warning of exclusion. Now, there's two collar grabbers here. There's two things that just grab them and say, you listen up. This is very important. The first is the fact that he starts off with this, amen, I say to you. Now, that's a unique thing about Jesus. And I, I don't translate it truly or verily because Matthew didn't. Matthew wrote in Greek, but that's a Hebrew word. There's no particular reason to, to put that word in the text except that Jesus characteristically taught in Greek, but every now and then he would say something in Hebrew or in Aramaic. And so Jesus said it. Matthew thought to record it as such. And so I also do the same in my translation. Amen means it is so. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, an affirmation, a very forceful way of saying this is absolutely true. You can count on this. You can rely on this. Of absolute truth, I say to you. And then he says, unless you turn and become as children. I say to you, unless you turn and become as children. You're converted and become as children. Now, they've asked a general question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he turns and says, I have something to say to you, unless you turn. He doesn't put it in general terms. He doesn't say unless one is converted unless one becomes his little children. He says, you. He speaks to them, unless you are converted and become as the little children. Now, these are two very attention-grabbing things, deliberately, so we'd better pay very close attention, don't you think? And we'd better not play games with those phrases. I've seen many commentators who do and try to make this as being something other than being about being saved. No, it's about being saved. When he says you won't enter into the kingdom of heavens, he's, he's saying you won't be saved. How do I know that? Well, because, duh, firstly. Secondly, because of verses 8 and 9. Here he says, enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Verses 8 and 9, he says, enter into life. 
It's the same thing, entering into life, eternal life, God's life, and entering into the kingdom of the heavens, becoming a citizen of that kingdom. They're the same thing. So he's saying, unless this happens, you won't be saved. You can't be saved. You can't be in God's kingdom. Well, you've got to wonder, why does he say that? <laughs> Aren't they already saved? Well, yeah, did I hear the word one? Yeah, in fact, one of them was not saved, was he? One of them was not saved. At this point, only Jesus knew that, and perhaps the person himself, that's Judas, spoiler alert, but uh, one of them wasn't saved. So to him, this was a very real warning. He never did get converted. He never did make himself as a little child. So he never did enter into the kingdom of heaven. He never did enter into life. He was, as Jesus calls him, the son of perdition. Now, the other 11 are believers, but they've gotten off track. And that's why they're in need of re-education. They're in need of Jesus going back to first principles. They need a sharp reminder. And boy, does he give them a sharp reminder. There's a real easy... uh, analogy uh, right at hand for us. What do we do at the first Sunday of every month? We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate communion. Well, what's that about? It's Jesus' sacrifice for sinners. It's how Jesus saves us. So does that mean we get saved again and again, first Sunday of every month? No. What's the purpose of that? To remind us to bring us back to first principles that we never, never, never forget that everything we are and everything we have as Christians is a result and a fruit of Jesus' death for his elect. Jesus achieved this. He purchased this for us. He accomplished this at the cross, and the Holy Spirit applied it to us. So he does a similar thing here. He's reminding them of what It is that is the starting lesson of the Christian life. Nobody starts out, nobody becomes a citizen of God's kingdom unless he's converted and becomes as the little children. So number two then, Jesus reminds them of the two demands for becoming a kingdom citizen. The two demands, verse three, parts A and B. And the first is conversion. Letter A, conversion. C-O-N-V-E-R-S, conversion. And he said, amen, I say to you, unless you are converted. Now this word converted, this verb, strafeta, it means to turn around. It means to do a 180. You're headed in one direction, then you turn around and head in the opposite direction. And saying this to somebody that you need to be converted is saying to somebody, you're heading in the wrong direction. You need to turn around. You need to turn around and head in the opposite direction. And yet, interestingly, the verb is passive in form. So you could translate it unless you get converted. Uh, He's saying it to them. They have a part in it. They're the ones who turn around. And yet they turn around as a result of something God does to them. They are turned around and they turn around. Uh, The Bishop of London at the time of Charles Spurgeon, whose name was uh, J.C. Ryle, says very well, Let these words sink down deeply into our hearts. Without conversion, there is no salvation. We all need an entire change of nature. Of ourselves, we have neither faith, nor fear, nor love towards God. Of ourselves, we're utterly unfit for dwelling in God's presence. Heaven would be no heaven to us if we were not converted. It is true of all ranks, classes, and orders of mankind. All are born in sin and children of wrath, and all without exception need to be 
born again, and made new creatures. A new heart must be given to us, and a new spirit put within us. Old things must pass away, and all things must become new. So conversion is the first necessity he reminds them of. And secondly, transformation, verse 3b. Unless you are converted and become as the little children. These are two sides of the same coin, obviously, but converted and become as little children. Transformation. Now, we're going to look at the specific meaning of of what he's saying to become as little children in the next verse. But here, the, the, the big picture is very simple, isn't it, really? I mean, let me just ask you, which end of life is little child? Is that at the beginning of life or the end of life? Well, that's the beginning of life, isn't it? And so what is Jesus saying when he says, turn around and become like little children? He's saying, start all over. Wipe the the slate clean. Do a a hard disk wipe and reinstall the operating system, as we'd say in the IT realm. Uh, You need a refresh. You You need reinstallation. You need to start all over again. That's the idea. We aren't this by nature, Jesus says, so we've got to become this. You know that word, become as little children. We're not naturally what he's calling us to. This is something that needs to take place. It's a change. It's a transformation. Now, the Bible has a number of different pictures for this, but they all say the same sort of thing. This is one of the ways that Jesus says that there needs to be a radical conversion. There needs to be a radical change. We need to turn around. We need to, though we're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old or older, we need to become as little children or we'll not enter the kingdom of God. Think of the other ways he says the same thing. Think back in chapter 16, verse 24, after he'd had to rebuke Peter for having the effrontery of, of, of uh, rebuking him and counseling him and telling him he should change course. In Matthew 16, 24, what does Jesus say? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Now, those are present tense, but deny himself is, is an heiress, meaning it's, it's the idea of the simple action. This is something you need to do. You need to deny yourself. What does that mean? You need to dethrone yourself. You need to abdicate. You need to get off the throne, take the crown off, thro- the crown off your head, and lay it at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to deny yourself. Stop trying to be Lord as you've done your whole life. Stop trying to be God as you've done your whole life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Why, that's death. Now, it may take a while to get dead, but becoming dead is a, well, you know, one moment you're alive, next moment you're dead. That's very radical transformation. And that's what Jesus calls us to spiritually, die that we might be born again. Die to our old life that we might be born again. John 3.3, obviously, you're probably already thinking of. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus tries to have fun with that. Can I crawl crawl back in my mother's womb and get born all over? And Jesus doesn't think that's funny at all. (laughs) He thinks he should have learned this from the book of Ezekiel. He says, truly, I truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A new supernatural birth from above, Jesus says, is a necessity. Or add to that uh, the picture in Acts 17.30 that God commands all men everywhere to repent 
Acts 17.30, repent. Have a radical change in the way you think. To repent is not just to change a couple of opinions. Now I'm of the opinion Jesus is the Son of God. Now I'm of the opinion He rose from the dead. Oh, I'm saved. No, it's, it's more than a change of opinion. It's a change of mind. It's a change of the way, the way we think, from thinking as trying to be our own gods and lords to thinking under the lordship of God Himself. You see, and this, this is the picture, isn't it, of what Jesus calls everyone to do when he becomes a Christian. What does he call everyone to do when he becomes a Christian as a, as a testimony? Water baptism, which is a picture of what? Dying, coming to a new life. Very punctiliar, very radical. Just the idea we've got here. Convert, become his little children. So, conversion and transformation. And now we come to the application of this to our lives. Perhaps slow down just a little bit. I'm going to look at this very... uh, This is so powerful and has so many ongoing applications. I want to make sure we all understand that. Now, Jesus has been saying you. He got their attention by not answering, by bringing this child out, and then by saying to them, unless you are converted and you become as the little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Then he makes a general statement in verses 4 and 5 about kingdom attitude. This is application letter C. And the first is regarding self. Regarding self. Therefore, whoever will humble himself as this little child, this is he who is the greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. So therefore, he says, so he's laying this on the foundation of verse 3, the need for a radical conversion, the need for a radical transformation. So, and in in his uh, application of this, we'll learn more about what he meant in verse 3. Therefore, whoever will humble himself as this little child, this is he who is greatest in the kingdom of the heavens. Humble himself, he says. Whoever will humble himself. Whoever. Any race, any age, any level of education, any economic level, Uh, wherever his location, this applies to everybody, whoever will humble himself. Now, that word humble, we think we know what that means, and if we think that, we're almost surely wrong. Uh, not, Not what Jesus means by the Greek word. Now, the history of the Greek word, adjective tapenos, tapenos, a verb tapenoo, at its first uses, it had a more physical meaning. It meant like lowlands, something that is physically low. Or metaphorically in the sense of being uh, of low power or low influence or low rank or low status. But it was the physical idea of being down low. That was the first uses of this word. And so uh, a, 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 a city-state might be low if it had been defeated uh, in battle. Now it's low. Now it's tapenos. It's low. It's humble. It's powerless. And the concept was not something that was generally admired or sought after. Humility was not thought to be something admirable, certainly not something noble. It's really the opposite. To be humble was to be low, to be base, to be uh, not dignified, not powerful. It's, It's seldom admirable. It's seldom an admirable trait. And the uses of this phrase, to humble yourself, are rare but always negative. It's always negative to humble yourself. That's not a good thing. You wouldn't encourage somebody to humble himself. 
You wouldn't say you were about to humble yourself. Because to humble myself is to show myself as inferior. To show myself as, as cringing and low and mean and, and insignificant. And perhaps as dominated by fear. Humbling myself would be a very bad thing. It was, to quote one scholar, unnecessary, vain, and irrational to humble yourself. The very thing Jesus says we must do, that's the way the Greeks would have viewed it. In fact, you've heard of the, the uh, philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle said that when he hears a man humbling himself, he doesn't stop him and contradict him because he's proving himself right. If he's humbling himself, he's saying that he's low and inferior. And if that's what he's doing, well, he's low and inferior. So Aristotle is not, not, not going to correct him. It was a low thing. Well, how about in Judaism? Now, in Judaism, it was not thought uh, to, uh, to scrape or make a display of humility. Now, the Old Testament does talk about being humbled before God, but it's an aspect of God that was missing in secular society. And Jesus certainly does not see the Pharisees as being humble people, though. In fact, the things they do to humble themselves, they do to exalt themselves, to make a big show of, um, of how holy they are and how righteous they are and how they're suffering. If they're, if they're fasting, you know, to look mis- miserable and, and let everybody know they're really fasting. I don't know if they put any ash on their forehead, but they certainly would make a big show of how they were suffering and, and so forth. So against this background, though, we have the Lord Jesus and what he said. He, remember his call in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. What does he say? He says, Come unto me, all you lab- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. You can come to me because I've lowered myself. And he's one who really did lower himself. I just make a quick pass in your minds to Philippians chapter 2, right? Where Paul calls us to show humble-mindedness towards one another. And then he says, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, no, it's higher than that. There is nothing higher than that. But what did he do? He didn't count it as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, And he humbled himself, Paul says, using that verb, becoming obedient to the death on the cross. So the Lord Jesus was the highest, and he made himself the lowest for us and our salvation. And he's the one talking to them, saying that one must humble himself. And then he says, as this little child. Now I want to talk to you about what does it mean to become as little children? What does it mean to humble yourself as this little child? One scholar made the point that a lot of commentators through church history have just taken the idea of child as if it were sort of a blank into which they just pour their own ideas instead of looking at how children were seen at this day and how they're portrayed in Scripture. Uh, Approaching it as if Jesus is saying, now you should make yourself as a child should be instead of as how a child is. In fact, he's even more specific to that. I'll get back to that in just a second. But if you ask people who've not really studied this, 
historically, what does it mean to become as a child? What are you likely to hear? Uh, you, you will become innocent or, or the purity of a child or the openness and obedience of children. You wonder if these are parents or teachers, any of them who say this, if they've actually met a little child. But, um, you know, being humble and pliable and, and being uh, meek and precious and pure and all that. Well, none of this is what would have been in Jesus' mind specifically. Uh, think of what Proverbs says about children. What does Proverbs say about children? Proverbs says that children, uh, well, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. It takes the rod of discipline to drive that from him. But naturally, a child is foolish. A child who's given his own way will shame his mother, we're told. A child who is started out on his own way, when he grows up, he won't leave that. He'll expect to get his own way his whole life, Proverbs 22, 6. And so what's the remedy? Well, in Proverbs, the remedy is the little child needs to put himself at his father's knees and learn. Needs to open up his head and learn and write it down on his heart because he's needy, because he's naturally foolish. He's in need of discipline and correction. He's need, in need of instruction. And that's the, the more of the picture in the Old Testament that children are, are needy. They need to be cared for. They need to be protected. They need to be loved and trained in the ways of God. They're not naturally strong. And that gets us into the, the broader reality of, of how children would have been seen in that day. Certainly, they're never held up as role models, not in secular life or in Judaism. Children are not held up, become like a child. This is very countercultural for Jesus to say, become as the little children, humble yourself like this little child. That's very countercultural. You don't find that anywhere, become as a child. Um, because children were seen as powerless, they were seen as weak and insignificant in society at large. They were unripe. They weren't full human beings yet. They were just in the process of becoming fully human. And, and at this point, they're simply dependent. As, as one scholar, another scholar, Craig Keener, says, it's the most power, they were the most powerless members of ancient society. So the general truth about children, we're talking about children, what are we talking about? Depe- dependent and needy. Dependent and needy. Not powerful. But here I want to get to the most important thing. This is more important, I think, than anything that I've said except for rinsing out the wrong ideas. That's important. <laughs> to, to get the right idea, often you need to throw out the garbage first so there's room for the, the, the real idea. And here's something that, to my surprise, I've got dozens of commentaries on Matthew, and I haven't looked at all of them, but all the ones I did look at, nobody talks about this one, to me, very obvious thing that Jesus says. And what is it, what, what is it that he says? Humble himself as who? As this little child. And then he talks about accepting a little child such as this one. So twice he points to that specific child. So why did he bring that specific child up? Did they not know what a child looked like? <laughs> I mean, did he bring a child up and just say, you know, just to refresh your memory, this is a child. I want to talk to you something about children, but I thought, I, I thought I'd refresh your memory. This is what a child looks like. No, there's something specific about that little child that he wants to make a lesson. Now, so let's ask ourselves, according to the record, and remember the scripture always has every word we need from God. What does Matthew tell us about that child? Well, all he tells us about that child is that when Jesus called him, he came and he stood where Jesus put him. And let himself be used the way Jesus wanted to use him. 
Could there be a lesson in that? He simply comes when Jesus calls. There's no debate. There's no argument. There's no why. There's no what's in it for me. There's no, well, let me negotiate. Uh, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Jesus calls him over, and as far as the text says, he just comes. And where does he come? Matthew expressly says he stood them in, in their midst. So he stands where Jesus puts him. Not where he wants to be, but where Jesus calls him to be. And there, Jesus wraps his arms around him and embraces him. And what is he there to do? What's his purpose in being there? Whatever Jesus wants him for. Right? And so having done, what purpose is he put to? Well, he's made useful by Jesus. He's glorified, really, by Jesus by being made an example of what a disciple should be. Simply came when Jesus called. He stood where Jesus put him, and he let himself be used by Jesus to Jesus' purposes. Now, I've got more to say about that, but don't you see the answer to their question right there? How does this apply to them right there? Well, as disciples, they need to be reminded that their primary job, their primary job is to come when Jesus calls, stand where Jesus puts you, and do whatever Jesus, whatever Jesus purposes. Lend yourself to whatever Jesus purposes. Now, in that, in all of that, where is any concern about who's the greatest? What does that have to do with anything? What would have been some good things to think about? Oh, they might have been just talking about, they might have been talking, Peter might have been talking about what he learned about lipping off to Jesus, mouthing off to Jesus when Jesus said what he, it was necessary for him to do. He might have been reflecting on what he learned from that. The other disciples might have been reflecting on that too so that they don't do the same thing, right? Or they might be thinking about Jesus' church and what their role in it is. Or they might be thinking about how they just failed to exercise faith and, and, and uh, uh, cast out this demon and how they might grow in their faith. Jesus was clearly really uh, worked up with them for showing such little faith. That, that might have uh, engaged their interest to see that, well, really to be useful to Jesus, they need to deepen in their faith. And he talked about his death again. They might have been working, rather than taking that to, to be an occasion to say, so which one of us gets to be greatest when you're dead? Which that's, seems strikes me as uncool. I mean, seriously uncool. You see the sense to it, but still, dude, seriously. What a thing to say. Instead of thinking about that, they might think about 100,000 other things that are a whole lot more important and have more to do with what they are as disciples and apostles. None of that has to do with coming when called, standing where he puts you, and committing yourself to his purpose, you see. So, I think that's the key here to understanding what Jesus means by it. What that little child did. The example of that little child that Jesus calls attention to. Ryle again says very well, Would we know whether we are really converted? Would we know the test by which we must try ourselves? The surest mark of true conversion is humility. And he goes on to say, truly this is a heart-searching test. It exposes the unsoundness of many a so-called conversion. It is easy to be a convert from one party to another, or from one sect to another sect, from one set of opinions to another set of opinions. Such conversions save no one's soul. What we all want is a conversion from pride to humility from high thoughts of ourselves to lowly thoughts of ourselves, from self-conceit 
to self-abasement from the mind of the Pharisee to the mind of the publican who says, be merciful to, to me, the sinner. A conversion of that kind we must experience if we hope to be saved. These are the conversions that are wrought by the Holy Spirit. So this is where everything must start for us as Christians or nothing has started. If it doesn't start here, it doesn't start at all. And that's why, as I've said in the past, there is no such thing as an ex-Christian. Now, when you say that, atheists and others scoff because they love to find somebody who says, well, he once went to a, a Christian church or used to be a Christian or he was even a pastor or whatever, but now he isn't one. Well, all that tells us is he never was one. There is no such thing as an ex-Christian if you define being a Christian biblically, right? It's just that they've shown their true colors, that they never were children of God. Because how do you start out being a children? Well, you start out by being converted and becoming as a little child, starting all over again by denying yourself, by dying to your self-life. If you've denied yourself, then how do you get on the throne again? How do you, if yourself is dead, then how do you live that self again? Well, obviously it wasn't dead if you can live that life again. You never were. This never happened. There's no coming back from this, and there isn't meant to be any coming back from this. So uh, uh, somebody who, who makes a profession of faith and then takes that back, as it were, just shows he never did this. It shows that he came into the Christian life clinging to his thoughts and his pride that's the big word, and his own opinions and his views. And when he accepted Jesus, he, he assumed that Jesus, being a smart guy, would agree with him about these things, because he's a pretty smart guy too. And he becomes a Christian knowing that he's right about certain things. He's just got to be. So he's taking those things into his Christian life with him, and he may make it down the road a mile or two until that thing comes up where he already he knows he's right. And he finds that Jesus has a different opinion than him. Uh, you know the, the website uh, Babylon Bee. It's a Christian satire site, sometimes just hysterically funny, sometimes. Mm. But uh, this is one of those hysterically funny headlines that said, man shocked to learn that God, who is all wise, disagrees with him on point. And it goes on to tell of him, him becoming a Christian, thinking, you know, I know I'm a pretty smart guy, and God knows everything, so I would expect him to agree with me on these things. And he's shocked to find out that there's something God doesn't agree with him about when somebody shows him from Scripture that Scripture says something different than he thinks. Ah, but then he finds that there's lots of people who have learned how to explain that Scripture really does agree with us. And he, now he's okay with it. He's got God to agree with him because, well, he knew he was right going in. This is the opposite of that. And I dare say that I have seen most damage and ruin come in Christian life, Christians' lives simply because of pride. And you, you say, well, you don't, wouldn't you say ignorance? Yeah, but the ignorance is born of pride. You come into the Christian life the right way. You come knowing you know nothing. You come knowing that unless you learn what Jesus teaches about something, you don't know what to believe about it yet, for sure. And you only come to know about it uh, when you are taught by Jesus. And let me be specific, from the written Word of God only when you're taught by that and you can point to that, then you know something about an issue. And so I think of a famous convert who wasn't really a convert at all. She became a Roman Catholic. That right there was a big red light. Uh, but perhaps she got in at the wrong door and was a genuine convert. Time would tell. Well, time did tell when she found out what the church capital T, capital C, teaches about homosexuality. 
Well, she knew what to think about homosexuality going in. And when she found out that the church disagreed with her, well, she knew that the church couldn't be right. Well, whatever, I don't care. That doesn't matter in that case. It matters about God, though. You become a Christian, what do you think about homosexuality? Well, whatever God teaches you from his word about homosexuality. What should you think about marriage? Whatever God teaches you from his word about marriage. Have you learned that yet? Well, then you don't know what to think about marriage. About sexuality? About child raising? About self-image? About politics? About culture? About church involvement? About being a friend? Being a neighbor? Being a wife? Being a husband? What do you think about that? Well, if you haven't yet learned what Jesus teaches, then you and I don't know what to think about that yet. That's what being a Christian is. We wipe the disc so that he can write on the disc. We humble ourselves as that little child. We go where Jesus calls us. We stand where he puts us. And that's the application of standing where he puts us. What, am I, what is my stance as a husband, as a pastor, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, as a citizen, as a churchgoer, a Christian, whatever, any of those things? Where am I supposed to stand? Where does Jesus want me to stand? Only one way of learning that. From his word. This is where he tells us where to stand. And we stand there, he'll put his arms around us and use us to his glory. But if we've got our own little agenda and our own little things, and I tell you, this is the thing that I've run into most often that's been the most uh, discouraging to me and disheartening to me. You know, I, I found that I can really teach just about anybody who's willing to learn. But the, thought, the sad thought I've thought more often than any other thought, I've shared this with you before, I just think, oh, wish I'd met you before you knew everything. Might have been able to help. Uh, as Ronald Reagan said about his political opponents, he said their, their, their problem is not um, that they are ignorant about so much, is that they know so many things that they're wrong about. <laughs> and that's what I've run into in Christians too. Uh, ignorance of what God's Word says is the problem, but, but the greater problem often is they know so many things and they're not biblical and they're not willing to see what the Bible teaches. And you show them what the Bible says, and well, they're sure you can't be right, because they already know what to think about that. Pretty much no matter what Scripture says. So you see, that'll be disastrous to a Christian life. And in a case like that, we need to be re-educated, just as Jesus is doing with the disciples here. They've shown that they've gotten off track, and so he re-educates them. He takes them right back to first principles. Remember what being a Christian is. Remember what it means to begin to be a disciple. It means to be converted. It means to humble yourself like this little child who had no thoughts of greatness or his own agenda. When I called him, he just came. Where I stood him, he just stood. And what I wanted to do with him, he let me do. And that's being a disciple. So, uh, this is where it must start or nothing starts and nothing goes anywhere. And this is where Ruin comes if this hasn't been taken to heart, if the Holy Spirit hasn't worked this in our heart. And this is indeed a work of God because our greatest problem in our besetting sin is pride. That's where everything started, remember, back in the garden where Adam and Eve decided that they knew a better course for themselves than their Creator did. And they had a better idea of the purpose of this fruit than the Creator of the fruit had and a better way for them to live than their Creator had. What's that? It's pride. It's, it's pride. It's a universe full, you know, it's a hell full of pride. 
is what it is. And, and that's our afflicting ill. And that's where it all starts with the death of our pride in repentance and conversion and humbling ourselves. You see, we never outgrow the need of this. That's where the Christian life starts. That's how it continues. And that is the road to glory. It never changes. We never get a pla- to a place where we've outgrown this, you see, where we don't need to be dependent anymore and weak before God. We don't ever get to a place where we don't need to get on our knees before God and say, you show me what to think about this. Let me hit the book, open my eyes to see wondrous things out of your law, like Psalm 119 prays, and you show me what to think about this. And where I'm wrong, give me the grace to see it and disown it and grow. Put my arms around what your word teaches. So, Regarding yourself, humble yourself as this little child, he says. And then he talks about regarding others in verse 5. And whoever welcomes one little child such as this one, on my name, it is me that he welcomes. On my name is not a typo. That's just a kind of unusual phrase in Greek. It's a preposition that means on the basis of my name or on the authority of my name. I take it that he's saying, because I say to because I say to, to welcome a little child like this. It's me that he welcomes. Now, you see this verse banishes all thought of competition and superiority. We welcome each other because Jesus says to welcome each other. And Jesus says as an added bonus, as an added incentive, that when we welcome one another like this, we're welcoming Christ. Because when we welcome someone who has humbled himself like this little child, then we welcome Christ. And if we welcome children in Christ's name to serve them and to teach them of Christ and not say, well, I'm really too big and important to do something like that. No, it's a great privilege to teach them about Christ. Well, then we welcome Christ. And and again, though, remember the context. If that's the spirit, then where does that leave competition? If I'm concerned about welcoming other fellow believers, then where do I get off competing with fellow believers, with wanting to be superior to them, wanting to have more glory and more prestige and more standing. Well, that's what the kingdoms of man are very concerned with. That's what the world is very concerned with. But this is a topsy-turvy kingdom. It does not have, well, actually, it's a topsy-turvy world. (laughs) The kingdom's the right way up. It's the world that's upside down. And this is the way it should be, to welcome one another in Christ's name, to welcome one another, and in so doing, to welcome Christ. Now, he's going to talk a lot more about what that means in the next section. This is a good hinge to the next section, but we'll get to that uh, later, Lord willing. But for now, we see Jesus coming roundabout to the way of addressing their question, saying, if you're going to come when I call and stand where I put you and be part of the, my purpose, then you'll focus on welcoming little children like this one. That'll be your focus. And you'll be glad when you find that you're welcoming me. So, this call to humility then, it takes us all the way from conversion to glory. This is not something that we just start with. Is this countercultural? Well, it sure was then. And neither humility nor children were broadly seen as being admirable or things that people want to model themselves after. And is it countercultural now to be called to humble yourself, to be converted? What is, it, what, what is given in conversion? Well, when I allow myself to, conversion, to be converted, I'm confessing that I, and I'm, I'm admitting that I've been heading in the wrong direction. 
And that's just the thing that pride doesn't want us to do. That a person doesn't want, but the more and more you are committed, the harder it and harder it is to admit, you know, I've been wrong. And people will cling to their pride before they'll let that go and they'll let it lead them to the uh, miserable conclusion that pride always leads to. But it's countercultural today to hear such a call. What, what is the call of today? Well, believe in yourself, have faith in yourself, follow your heart, look out for number one. Number one is the Holy Trinity of, well, the unholy Trinity of me, myself, and I. That's what the world is all about. This is very countercultural to that. This is Jesus' way. Calls us to repent, to not deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Only in that way do we enter the kingdom. And take a very important lesson from the fact that he says this to disciples who've been walking with him for some time. A little historical lesson, just a real little one. I just remind you of something that you already know. That in, in the history of the last few centuries, there have been such things as national churches. There's the Church of England. There's the Lutheran Church in Germany. And if you're a citizen of whatever country, you're a member of that church. And so obviously many, many unsaved people think of themselves as Christians because they're English, because they're German, because they're whatever in one of these countries. And so against that, evangelicals, Bible believers have said, no, you need to be converted, just like this verse says. You need to be born again, just like we've seen and reminded ourselves of today. That's very important. But the trouble is that that has gone in in many places to the opposite direction, to uh, unbiblically oversimplify it to just a decision, a decision to say, okay, I'm a Christian now, I'll, I'll repeat that prayer, or okay, I'll change my opinion about who Jesus is or whether he was resurrected. Well, now you're a Christian and, and you're done, and no matter what you do, it doesn't really matter because of that thing that happened in that second. That's all of it right there. And yet Jesus here is saying to people who've been walking with him for years now, you need to be converted He's reminding them of first principles. My point to you is we never outgrow this. This is something we need to refresh ourselves in remembering what the basis and the tenor of our Christian life is. It's not greatness. It's not independence. It's not pride. It is conversion. It is humbling myself as this little child. It's coming to Jesus' call, standing where Jesus puts me, letting myself be used by him to his purposes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and confess once again that it is indeed sharper than a two-edged sword. My prayer is that it will cut where needed, that it will be the the scalpel in the hands of the great physician, and that where we need to see uh, a conviction and a point where we need to return to first principles ourselves, that the gracious Spirit of God will lead us there and help us to embrace what our Lord Jesus teaches us and apply it to ourselves in the specific way you'd have us apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.